It's not just about changing the conversation. It's about changing the goal of the conversation. It's not just about trying to be right or trying to prove somebody wrong, but it's about seeking to understand, seeking to learn and seeking to grow. And when that's the objective of our conversation, that's when everybody starts to win. You don't understand, don't misunderstand. And a lot of people, when they don't understand, they already draw their conclusion or make assumptions that their perception of what they understood is the reality. If we're not trying to be right or trying to make somebody else wrong, but we're seeking clarity, that's where the bridge can actually be crossed. All right. Welcome back to another episode of It's Not So Black and White. Uh, as of right now, I'm flying solo, but we might strike it lucky and see if one one or two co-hosts uh, happen to hop on a little bit after the uh, after we've kicked off. But it is my pleasure tonight to be chatting with Tim Heal all the way from the UK. <laughs> yeah. So you have quite a storied, well, background. You've done a lot of things. What I thought a topic would be very interesting to tackle tonight was just this idea of propaganda and psyops or psychological operations, because in in, in military conflicts, this is a very, um, I guess, a, a very important part of it. But it's also probably shrouded in a lot of mystery for many people when they hear these terms. They they probably have some ideas or misconceptions about it, or things have been sensationalized, maybe in the realm of Hollywood or in, in movie mo- the movie industry, um, and it probably looks a lot different. Um, than how it's dramatized in the, on the big screen. So how did you find yourself into, yeah. in that? So, so I signed on for another four years of this uh, uh, regular reserve. Bugger sent me a letter back, mobilizing me. <laughs> okay. So you think you're signing up for a, a once-a-year sort of thing, and yeah, turns yeah. out, actually, we have need of you currently. I'll, I'll, I'll turn up thinking you're going to have a bit of a jolly at the depot. What they've done is they, they put us through a proper mobilization package they they taken all our civvies officers give us a, a, a new bit of kit stuck us on the back of the four ton of trucks and then drove us up to a traded area in the middle of nowhere the train i got i was a, a teleop radio relay operator on euromux which is a, a basically a, with the switch you, you put a telephone network into the field into into a headquarters and this new unit that was forming up in 1998 was looking for recruits. And I kind of fitted the bill. They, they wanted people that were in the, the media industry, so the print industry, the radio and television industry, um, and somebody that could drive a truck. And I okay. fitted the bill. So I got recruited onto the 15 UK Psychological Operations Group uh, at the back end of 1998. Okay, so you're you're now getting into into I guess starting to get trained into psychological operations here, and uh, the British military has a specific unit dedicated to this. What is kind of their their purpose? Uh, or the, you know, because when we think again, when we think of the military, we often think about you know the guns and the tanks and the planes and the boats mm. and the ships and and uh, boots on the ground and things like that. They established this new unit, which was 15 UK Psychological Operations Group, and it consisted of eight regulars and 28 reserves, was what they were um, rostered for. So, In a nutshell, how, how would we define psychological warfare? Psychological operations is a campaigns directed at a known target audience to change an attitude and behavior to meet 
political and military means. Okay. So it's because when people hear it, I wonder if they're thinking, you know, like brainwashing and mind control and stuff like that. But uh, I imagine it's a little bit different than this. And uh, you have to have an understanding of psychology and understand how, how people work and how their brains work. But the goal isn't necessarily some nefarious means, but really almost more like an influence operation. Would that be an accurate term to use? That's the term they're using nowadays, I believe. Okay. Um, we went through a phase where, where the people got really hung up on the word psychological. So they changed the name of the group to 15 UK Information Support Group. <laughs> okay, give it a more benign title versus, it, it, you know. It didn't, it didn't last long. We we reverted back to, to psychological operations. We, we had an operation that was running already. Um, we had a, a few guys in Bosnia, and they were running a radio station, Radio Oxygen, they called it, basically just a commercial radio station that was pumping out music and, and the odd message uh, uh, for for the local population. At this time, Kosovo was starting to build and get pretty ugly. Heating up and, yeah. Yeah. I, I was asked by the CEO, he says, would you be prepared to sort of uh, be mobilised and, and go on an operational tour? Oh, of course I would. Yeah, no problem at all. Thinking, yeah, right. <laughs> Ain't going to happen, is it? Right, right. Yeah, so it did. <laughs> so uh, there's a, a little detail there that uh, I, I don't want to make sure we don't doesn't get missed. This was there. There was a military operation that involved setting up a radio station to broadcast to a local population. So it's almost like a, a, a radio station in disguise, or you know, the radio station was the disguise for what was really actually more of an influence operation. Is that is that is that correct? Or am I hearing you correctly on that? Yeah, kind of. It, it wasn't hidden. It, it, oh, okay. It, everybody knew that Radio Oxygen was being run by. Uh, the British military in um, Bani Luka. Okay. And, 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 and it was set up and it was, it was, everybody knew it was uh, our radio station. And okay. they knew what we were pushing out. I mean, we were basically just pushing out. Most of it was just music, news, and the odd message. Lots of the messages were about mind awareness, some of the, 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 the problems that were happening in, in the local area. Right. So, so from that point of view, it was, that's what that radio station was there. That's okay. what they were doing in Bosnia. So it sounds as though, uh, like, in this case, this type of sort of PSYOP is not not nearly as clandestine as, again, people might be picturing. Or not. It's, it's, this, this was a fairly open operation here. Um, and uh, obviously mining was a bit, mines were a big problem, like, you know, especially with like children running and playing fields or something and, and, and getting injured. And so this was uh, really trying to, to reduce harm. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. Uh, and that's, that, that was pretty much the remit. It was, it was keeping the, keeping the two sides apart to, <laughs> from killing each other. It was putting out all positive messages. Um, and that's the way that we were doing business. In, that was in Bosnia. So Kosovo was rearing its ugly head and things weren't, weren't going particularly nice down there. So the, the CO says to me, would I be prepared to, to mobilise and go to um, to Kosovo? So I said, okay, I'm up for that. So I got mobilised and then the real hard work started. 
we have to know how to how to do it from flash to bang. So I, I, I was working on the planning side with the planners to look at the um, what the commander's message was, what we wanted to achieve. I was working on target audience analysis. So I was looking in depth at the target audiences that we were looking at influencing. I was looking at what sort of products would work on them. So I was doing product development and then doing a, the pre-testing on it and then doing a post-testing on it and disseminating it. So the whole gambit, um, and we were only a small team as well. Yeah. When you, when you say product, uh, I know, cause I think language is such an interesting thing. It's how, you know, yeah. we, we attach a sense of meaning to it. You were developing psychological operation products. What are we, what are we referring to? Cause that's a very sort of benign term. Uh, what would be a couple of examples of products that you might be developing? When we initially got in there, it was, it was putting a message out that, um, for us, it was it was UK forces. We were going to be operating in and around sort of Pristina, um, going up to um, Podiavo, uh, and operating in that area there, around sort of Pristina and and Podiavo, which was the two big towns that we looked after. Right. Yeah. And the sort of messages that we originally putting out were saying that that there are foreign troops coming into your area to provide safety and security. For yourselves and for the, 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 this is the ethnic Albanians that lived in Kosovo, Kosovans basically, mm-hmm. and uh, the small Serb population that were living, that have always lived in Kosovo. Right. Okay. And so, is this broadcast in in the native language of the of the country or region, or was it broadcast in in English or both? Um. No, it was it was it was mainly in um, ethnic Al- or, uh, Serbian, basically, and Albanian. So Mm-mm. we had a, we had a we had a radio station that we set up in conjunction with the radio station. That we, again, pushing out music, news, and good news stories. We had printed products that we were pushing out. So, be mine awareness leaflets was one of the big things at, at that time. It yeah. was reporting behaviors that were, were deemed as to be sort of terrorism, that sort of thing. So, right. And then one of the big campaigns that I worked on was um, um, called Optrojan. And in just just north or just south of Pristina, there was a, a, a town called Grazanica, which was yeah. predominantly Serb. So... Pristina was predominantly ethnic Albanian, and there was a small Serb population in this town called Grazanica, and there was another town over Kosovo, Polie, where there was another Serb enclave. And we were one of, well, it was Swedish battalion that was working down there, um, providing safe routes for the Serbs to sort of cross over to the, to the Kosovo, Polly, and back was a forwards, and to be able to come down into Pristina to do the shopping and that sort of thing. We came up with the idea of putting this uh, newspaper together. We worked yep. with um, the local priest in uh, Grazanica, 
So you're, you're working with the local population to develop yeah, yeah. Like a, a print newspaper. So we printed up this uh, Serb Telegraph, we called it, and, and we worked with but with the main priest down at the, the monastery in Grasanica, um to to put this together. They came up with some articles we were putting in there, some of our messages and stuff like that, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and they were distributed for us. Yeah, this this points to kind of an interesting premise here. Why, why I'm digging around a little bit is because, you know, psychological operations involving setting up radio stations or setting up print newspapers in local populations, and that would point to the possibility that this sort of thing is still occurring and, and not necessarily just occurring in um, conflict zones or zones that we would describe as, as war-torn, but rather uh, are psychological operations like this deployed during peacetimes in and among populations as well, and if so, would it probably be try you know kept a little more uh, under wraps or a little little less obvious what what was happening here? Certainly, when I was on fifteen UK psychological operations group, um, we only dealt with a conflict. I did two tours of Kosovo. I did Macedonia, where we had the task force Harvest, which was the collection of weapons off of the National Liberation Army of Albania. I was there when 9-11 happened. Yeah. Five months later, I found myself in Kabul in Afghanistan. Then I did another two tours of Afghanistan. Um, and prior to those two tours, I did uh, a tour of Iraq. Okay. And so for, for those who were watching and um, after the fact, and those who are listening, um, we, we have a few photos here, kind of a, a few slides that, that uh, Tim's actually put together. Where we can show and describe some of the things that were actually taking place. And so I believe Spotify does allow for um, also for video episodes. So if you're watching on one of the other platforms, it doesn't allow, but you're interested, you may want to have a look, hop over to Spotify to have a look at some of this. We're going we're gonna to share a bit of this. So are, are they covering more your operations in like Afghanistan and or Iraq, or is there some of the older stuff as well? Um, predominantly Afghanistan, and there's a couple in there of Iraq. Yeah, yeah. So let's. Uh... I haven't got much from Kosovo. So this Fair is. Um, I, I'm about sort of three or four months into my tour, uh, my second tour in Afghanistan. This is down in Helmand province. Okay. As very, very say, dry and I'm dusty. Gonna... Oh, very dry and dusty, hot and cold, and uh, yeah, um, uh, cold, cold at night, hot in the day. Yeah, pretty much. I was out on. Uh, this was just before we had a contact, actually. So we we're out on this little patrol, and uh, we got contacted, uh, and we had a bit of a. It was a shooting war back then. This is around about yeah, two, yeah, five two thousand six. And so for, for folks that maybe not understand or not familiar with the way that military terminology gets used, yeah, contact refers to uh, like an active in- engagement with uh, opposing forces uh, using oftentimes using deadly force. So firefight, you know, gunfight to use a more, yeah. you know, that sort of but thing. For, for us, it was uh, coming under effective enemy fire. Yes. Okay. Um, so we, we just stopped at this place here. Um, it's fairly open, and if you can see just over on the right there, there's a a typical type compound. Yeah. Uh, so so we we where we'd stopped, there was a police checkpoint. This is kind of a bit of a road. <laughs> right. Okay. Uh, yes. So it looks like you know. Did you ever feel like sitting ducks going out on a patrol like this, where you're in like the wide open and you can be seen sort of from miles away, um, or does the wide open also mean that there's limited places for the enemy to find cover? 
uh, out in the open, this this particular terrain um, was okay because we know that their weaponry isn't fantastic. They're not great shots. Okay, <laughs> our, our fair problem, enough. Our problem comes once we get in amongst the uh, the compounds and stuff like that. And in the close range, there, that it, it gets a little bit more complicated because it's it's then doing a bit of fighting, sort of hands of or yeah, like very like close quarters close quarter, kind of thing. Close quarter combat, which is a bit more challenging uh, to control. Yeah. So is this uh, this next shot here? We're kind of looking at. Uh, it looks like you're fairly close yeah. to some sort of um, structure. And yeah, so, so this is this this is a place called Natalie. Um, it okay. was fairly prominent. It was a fairly hot spot. And this was a couple of days before I left this tour in 2006. You know, it's I've taken my beard off. Yeah. yeah. Own with, with a sort of a white face. So Fair so, enough. You wanted to get a bit of a tan under that. <laughs> yeah. Now, that had a, a, a big negative effect, actually, taking my beard off. Uh, I, I'd, I'd had a lot of um, respect from the local guys that I was working yeah. with, predominantly the, the interpreters that I worked with, respected me because I had a beard on. I was an elder. And um, okay. when I took the beard off, the attitude to me changed quite a bit. Right. Okay. And so, yeah, that, that's very interesting. So because culturally speaking, growing a beard is a, is you know a sign of you know eldership or, or being a seniority and the length of your beard indicates – you know, e- even more so. And so shaving that off uh, kind of potentially uh, damaged relations that you'd spent quite a bit of time building up. Would that be accurate to say? Yeah, fair. fair. <laughs> That's a fair one. Yeah. Okay. So this um, this was 2008. This year. Yeah. Um, You're up this, in the mountains here. Yeah, this is this is in the north of Helmand. This is up at Kajaki. Okay. Uh, there's a dam. There's a dam up there. And this, that, Big box there is a is a is a rehab. It's a radio in a box. Okay. So I've got the antenna cables there. I've got the antenna strapped on the top, and I've got the the actual rehab lashed down in. Uh, and we've got this big lump of um, four by two, uh, and we carried it from the far end of that ridge all the way up to the <laughs> other end of this ridge. Yeah. We sighted because it wasn't working particularly well up there. So just looking at the photo here, you, yeah, you've got what, maybe like an eight foot or 10 foot, uh, uh, two by four or something along those lines. Is that to literally to, to sit on your shoulders and carry it between a couple of guys, like an old yep. school Egyptian chariot yeah. or something like that? Just, just the two of us. Okay. Just, you know, uh, everything on that route had to be carried. Oof, yeah. A safe route uh, along because, um, and this is reciting this, this re- rehab. Okay. So that's, that's me putting an antenna up. And yeah, the smoke that you can see in the background is the the guys that had a contact. They were out on the ground and they had a contact, and that's a five hundred pound bomb being dropped on the uh, okay the the attackers. Yeah, which you know, again, these are some you know tricky sort of scenarios yeah. here. Uh, yeah. This 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 picture here is me working on the the ISAF news in Kabul in two thousand and two. That's this International is, Security Assistance Force, ISAF, is that right? That's it, yep, in a, and, in a nutshell. And so, we're coming up with this concept of this newspaper. Okay. And it's going to be a tri-language newspaper in English, Pashto, and Dari. Okay. Predominant um, 
predominant messages in there was it's all going to be good news. It's all going to be stuff that um, ISAF was doing, all positive messages. Yeah. Okay. Um, and 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 I had, uh, and then I got some new equipment, and this is how yeah. I ended up working. But yeah. I had, I had fantastic opportunities to go out and interview different people for the paper. Okay, like like uh, members of the local population. No, no, but much higher than that. Okay, um, Hamid Karzai. Okay, I did Ash, Ashraf Ghani. I did the Minister of Hajj. Uh, I did a two or three other ministers. Um, and I did a female that mm. I bumped into uh, a few years later uh, in Helmand. So, um, so someone like Hamid Karzai, who was, uh, I guess, the president, is, is, was he president? Yeah, I'm not sure what, he of was Afghanistan. president at that time. Uh, and, and we were able to get access to him, and he gave us an interview for the newspaper. And, if, you know, if I understand, like, his, his uh, governing his government was sort of racked with um, uh, allegations of corruption. I, I didn't actually follow the story, so I can't say whether or not any of these things were pr- uh, proven true. But uh, uh, is it a case of, I mean, the country itself is very corrupt, so you have to work with what, you, what, what, what you've got? Or Yeah, I mean, all, all these third world countries are, you, you give somebody power and they'll abuse it. Um, yeah. And I'm, 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 I don't think it does. it matters where you go. That's just the nature of the beast, right? Fair enough. So, and so, so this is a uh, this is up in um, up in the Sangin Valley. Yeah. And so we're we're looking at there was of a, a one of the radio stations that we put up. Okay. And and, and the guy who was there. He was the guy running it. He had a, an interpreter that that did all the the broadcasting of it. So he ran him and, and I showed, I worked with him a few days, showed him how to, to put a radio program together, how to put the music on, how to. Uh, yeah. So, so, yeah. So a lot of psychological operations are really um, things like radio stations, newspapers, and obviously as we move ahead, you know, in terms of time that they'll have, they'll have um, changed a little bit. Uh, you know, which makes me curious, you know, um, if, if like say social media apps are being used in this way now and digital media and so on, but obviously in, in a locale like this, where maybe, um, technological advancement of the society is, is, um, not quite as far along as we are here in, in first world countries, mm-hmm. um, you're using sort of more basic means to, to reach the population. Um, this looks like just a, a shot of kind of, uh, military that's, encampment. That's, that's, that's one of the, um, places that I visited. Um, I bounced around for six months um, around Helmand, installing, servicing, training guys up on, on rehabs, which is a radio in a box. Yeah, R-I-A-B. Yeah, radio in a box. Yeah. Essentially, it's a 50-watt um, transmitter with a mixing desk and some media players on it. And is that to allow people to to uh, to broadcast? Is that yeah, yeah, yeah? Okay, so you're like setting up like mobile mini radio stations, and is is that yeah. accurate? Yeah, exactly that. Um, I mean, okay, these these radio stations, if you if you get it sighted right, if you get it tuned in correctly, you can push out a good sort of um, ten fifteen kilometers with it. Okay, very interesting. So. 
uh, these these weren't necessarily national level radio stations in this case. It's you're just trying to reach a local community and and maybe they've got some radios and they can kind of uh, they can kind of tune in here. So um, and, and a lot of the structures that just look sort of like brick brick or clay structures or mud, mud. It's, it's, yeah, it's, yeah, they're just mud and they, they, that's an old compound. But that the, the vehicle there is is what they sent out um, in two thousand two with a load of new equipment for me and I'll use that to drive around. Um, yeah. It looks kind of like an armored, uh, like an armored, not quite a cube van, maybe kind of like a cube van, except it's kind of, you know, uh, there's no armored on it. <laughs> not none. So you just kind of hope you don't take hits from our, just basically a box body for, for lugging kit about. Um, <laughs> okay. Yeah. It's called a pin, pin scour. Great. Okay. Bit six for six, six. Yeah. Okay. And this is just another, this is kind of a cool shot, I think, just of the landscape here up on top of the mountain, looking down into a river valley. Yeah, is that right? That's, that's looking down into the Sangin Valley, basically, from Kajaki. Okay. In the, in the north of uh, Helmand. So that's, yeah. that river is, is um, Sangin. Yeah. Oh, and, and, and this would be, a, this is a power station? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's, that's the bottom of the, the, the Kajaki Dam. And there was a big, big operation there to put in a new transformer or new to to power generator. And when you when you go and like work on maybe getting equipment like this installed, is there a risk of like uh, sort of this being pillaged or pilfered or having like equipment taken out? Like, do you have to provide some kind of armed security around it to to make sure it's reliable? Or it was it was a massive, massive operation to get this generator up to the to the dam, and and we spent. A, several months broadcasting what we were doing this that and the other and and the convoy because it was it was such a heavy piece of kit um yeah it was a big big operation to get out there it took took a couple of weeks so is the goal uh, yeah the goal of broadcasting is that to get the local population on your side and maybe dissuade uh fighters from coming and attacking you while you're trying to do this because that would then upset the local population and turn them against um maybe some of these militant groups that's what we were trying to do um, yeah and that's, that was that was big part of that particular campaign is to inform the locals that this this generator that was going up to the dam was going to be able to provide them with stable power. Yeah. Something yeah. they don't, they, they didn't really have. I mean, the power was up and down like a yo-yo. Yeah. Well, this, so this um, next shot here looks like some power lines being run over some mountain ridges or something along those lines. Is that right? Yeah. This, this, this is, this is from the dam. Okay. Um, and and yeah. that's, that's taking the power. I think this going that direction there, it was going over to, um, Kandahar. Right, yeah. So, the, but they they were going to produce power over to Kandahar as well. Yeah, and this and so, is this, this is down the south of our area, Garmasia. Yeah, um, and, and I was down on patrol down there. We were looking at um, where to site a radio station, and because we needed to put a generator in mm-hmm. as well to give it the power to run. It was a, that was a, that was a big big nightmare because we we're going to put in a, a one kilowatt transmitter down there. Right. Yeah. Uh, we we had a we had a fifty watt transmitter down there. Uh, there was there was a really actually that's a good story in itself. But, um, yeah. Yeah. And this is uh, maybe out on patrol, is it? This this is this is the the one with all the the orange one is yeah. Baghdad at Camp Victory. 
Okay. And the, the, the guy waved his arms madly at us, shouting us down to, to get onto the aircraft because we, we, we were flying back down to Basra. Okay. And, uh, and we, we just got on the aircraft. It, it, it was taxiing as we jumped on the back. <laughs> okay. We've been a couple of days in, in Baghdad for, for a SOAPS meeting with the, the Americans and everything like that. Yeah. They closed the airport as soon as our aircraft took off. Okay. We got up and stuck there for a fortnight. Okay. Can you just go back to the oh, yeah. picture? And the picture on the left there is me stood outside uh, a, a, a town called Al-Kabir. Okay. In, in Iraq. Uh, and that building behind was where they killed six military police officers. <sighs> That's awful, um, and that that whole town of Alkabir was there was a really nasty underlying feeling. You, you couldn't put your finger on it, but it was a horrible, horrible place. You just you just the the energy of the place is just uh yeah. you know there, there's there's something to it which is is quite shocking, and uh, I, I quite like this slide here. What we're looking at, you know, you titled it the, for those who are listening. It's the face of Afghanistan. We're looking at. Um, whether it's yeah. uh, women receiving uh, and children receiving military aid, um, children playing, maybe communicating with uh, tribal elders, if I've got that right, and whatnot. Yeah. So you've spent yeah. you've spent quite a bit of time in sort of maybe these uh, seemingly hostile locales as mm-hmm. a a foreign military presence and uh, trying to win the hearts and minds of the local population here. And you yeah. know, how how did you find that you were received in these places? Um, well, basically, um, yeah. The the Afghan Afghans the, the general population of of, of of Afghans are really hospitable people. Mm. Um, they they're really friendly, um, and and they want a better life for themselves. And because I think they've had such a long time of conflict in the country, I mean, go go back to to what it was in the sixties under the Shah. Right, the Shah yeah. was trying to, to to bring the, com- the the country into the twenty first century, hoping to to modernize it and maybe sort of a similar way. Yeah, to yeah. The and and if, you, if you if you look back at, at Kabul in that time, it was a it was an up and coming cosmopolitan city. Yeah, um, they, yeah. They, they were wearing Western clothes. There was there was lots of growth. There was lots of uh, innovation that the Shah was bringing in. And then, unfortunately, it all went petal when he when he invited the Russians in to help right. build some infrastructure and all the rest of it. And then right. we got the Mujahideen. Um, oh, there was a there was a few incidents that that kicked off and. Which caused the the downfall, the eventual downfall of the, the Russians having to leave with a towel between their legs because the Mujahideen kicked them out. Yeah, and that's when yeah. when the the lights of the, the the Taliban kind of started to infiltrate the country, which was really sad. Yeah, absolutely. And so and this looks like just a, a place where you would call. Well, <laughs> that's the, that's the sort of conditions that I was working in. Yeah, um, so you got a rifle. I'd be, fold I'd up be put up in all sorts of places. 
Um, so it's a loaded rifle. My kit's ready to go all the time. That's one of the laptops that we're using. Um, I'm, you can see the cable there for the for the antenna for the um, the rehab. So I was yeah. I was in this place. They put us up. <laughs> it's just, yeah, I put up in sorts of places. Yeah, no. Uh, this is a picture that I wanted to get to, and for those listening, this is a bit of a curious picture because what we see is a, it looks like a teddy bear with um, bo- uh, ropes tied to both of its arms being sort of held up. Its feet are still touching the ground. But yeah. what exactly is taking place in this photo here? Okay, the the, the story behind this photo is that we were uh, as as a, a group we were going on a, a big big NATO exercise in Germany, and. On the first day of uh, back in the UK before we left for Germany, one of the officers turned up with this teddy bear. Okay. Within half an hour, it had been captured. <laughs> okay. And this this poor bear was held captive for for the two weeks that we were on this exercise. Um, and, and for ransom. The, the, the ransoms kept going up for coffee, tea, whatever we needed to get this teddy bear back. And when we finally got back to the UK, he got the bear back. <laughs> <laughs> so this is a bear bear being held for ransom. Uh, yeah. And so it's it's been interesting kind of exploring. Uh, we'll come back to that slide there in a sec. It's been kind of interesting just, just exploring this idea in and around um, psychological operations because it, it, it's coming across quite differently than maybe I might have anticipated or might have pictured. And obviously, like I said, my perception may have been influenced by what we see in, in media, whether it's movies or television or sort of things that are dramatized for cinema. It seems like it's a lot more, I guess, uh, practical and, you know, you're, you're, you're producing in a sense, you're producing messages and then you're producing medium or media to deliver those messages. Very often in the case of the time that you were working, it was like, it could be print newspaper, it could be a radio station. Um, and you're connecting with local populations, learning and understanding what's important to them. So you can create messaging that will uh, resonate with them or that they will um, appreciate while trying to win the hearts and minds. And it wasn't necessarily a secretive thing that you were doing. Is that is that an accurate sort of summarization? Yeah, pretty much. Um, there, there, there were campaigns that we worked on. I mean, this, this for anybody that's in the in and security world, yeah, or have kittens at this this next phrase that I'm going to say. When we were working on a, a product, it was secret until released. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so while we we're working on it, we didn't want it as, as, to get out there because we were. It, it was a, been a project or product that was being developed, so we put on it secret until released. Right. Okay. And the Int and Security boys just couldn't get the head into that that concept <laughs> that it was secret only until released, because a lot of the work yeah. that by Int you mean intelligence, uh, thinking like yeah. the MI6 or CIA or these yeah. sort. Of Operation. All, all, all those would have kittens uh, uh, that phrase yeah but, but some of the stuff that we did I mean, was fairly classified yes yeah. particularly particularly some of the um the intelligence that we were using on the on the target audiences so we would get information in uh, from all sources yeah uh, th- there's open source information that you can get from anywhere and everywhere 
then you've got your classified information or intelligence. They take yeah. they take information. Funny thing is, you give them, you give them some information, they play with it, and they spit it back out. Yeah, as intelligence. <laughs> uh, how about that? So then, what would be uh, the connection and perhaps the difference between psychological operations and propaganda, if any? And maybe a, a core or a secondary follow-up question to to that would be: Is propaganda an entirely negative thing? The difference between psychological operations and propaganda. Okay, what we do is psychological operations. What the enemy do is propaganda. Now, so then, from the perspective and, of the enemy, would they be uh, doing? Would it be reversed? Where would they feel that like what you are doing is propaganda? Quite possibly. However, yeah. having said that, propaganda can can sometimes be for the good, because if it backfires on those that are pushing the propaganda, it can turn to a positive for us. Okay, interesting. And vice versa, because, uh, you know, it seems like the, at least the spin that we might get in, in our media is, in a sense, uh, very rarely does our media necessarily want to condemn what, what what takes place, say, within Western military operations and whatnot, but things are not necessarily always, uh, maybe I could put it this way, uh, Maybe it's that things are a little more gray. It's not always that uh, we're necessarily the good guys going into these places, and sometimes there's more than meets the eye. Uh, it's not to say that that's entirely evil or nefarious either, but um, maybe a little more subtle and nuanced. Yeah. Um, I mean, there, there, there are basically three types of psychological operations. There's what we do, which is pure white psyops. It's directed at a known target audience from a known source, i.e. us. Then you get the grey psyops, which is directed at a target audience, and you're not sure where it's coming from. Right. And then you get the real, real dodgy stuff, which is the black psyops, which yep. is somebody pertaining to be somebody totally different okay. to affect changing somebody else's. Uh, so... The, the black psyops the, the problem that you have with that is if if you're caught if it's found out where it's come from you've lost all your credibility and you might as well just pack your bags and bugger off because you're right it. right because and, it and would seem like there's yeah because yeah. it might seem like there's a temptation to engage in something like black psyops because potentially it's more effective and i don't know that that's necessarily a, a true statement but I, I could understand maybe the appeal of potentially utilizing it because um it would it would seem that very often people would rather consume uh information that confirms their biases or is more comfortable to hear and so in the realm of black psyops that's something that could be done in terms of you know to influence people tell them what they yeah. want to hear versus the reality of the situation i guess that, that sometimes we, it just uh, by we meaning the public, is on the receiving end of potentially psyops from our our own intelligence community, and it could be in the realm of like you know uh, this is maybe sort of 
tiptoeing over to the realm of conspiracy, but thinking of agencies like the an intelligence agency utilizing a medium or a media such as uh, the movie industry, like Hollywood, for example, to create movies that uh, help to shape hearts and minds. But you think you're getting it from a movie studio, but really ultimately it's coming from an influence operation. Is that something that you, you see uh, taking place? And if so, are you able to spot this stuff? Well, um, I think if let's, let's, let's take the last couple of years. I don't know what the rest of what it's been like in Canada, but certainly here in the UK, we've had a psychological operations campaign directed at the UK population to instill fear into the population about the, the, the pandemic that we've been through. And now it's kind of backfired slightly on them because now they're trying to convince people that it's okay they don't need to wear masks. We've done away with all of that. However, the amount of people that are still walking around with masks on mm-hmm. is really funny because they don't trust the government anymore. Uh, so the, the and, backfiring incentive. One of the other things that they've just done is the the sage, they've just wound it up. They just disbanded it because... They spent the last two years giving us dodgy information, and <laughs> right, it, it's all gone pee tongue on them. So yeah, and this is this is where things get kind of interesting. Looking at current events and looking at that the fact that, and again, we, we, I feel like we, we want to be we want to tread carefully because you know we're, we're tiptoeing in around the area of conspiracy. Although ironically, sometimes it think it's, it it seems as though things that are labeled as conspiracy end up becoming true a couple of years down the road. So uh, I think mm. something that's making headlines at the time of recording is this, you know, Hunter Biden laptop story. And I, I really can't say that I've read any news stories about it. So I don't know a lot, but I've seen it bandied about or headlines about it. And I think the mm. idea is, and so I, I can't even speak authoritatively on it because I haven't read the news stories. I should have, but just the idea was a couple of years ago when it was coming out, this, this existed, it was being, uh, um, dismissed and this isn't true and and so on and so forth and then two years later maybe when it's safe to acknowledge well actually it turns out this was true and this is real and there are these these shady crooked dealings that are happening but uh, now it doesn't damage someone's presidential campaign but what's happening now potentially or what i'm you know because you're talking about like, like blowback here and i see this as well you're eroding your own credibility by denying the existence of something or or trying to discredit it yeah. when in turn the truth emerges a couple of years later and it's like well hang on a sec why did you lie to us in the beginning? Why didn't you just tell us the truth? So is this what you mean when you're saying that uh, sometimes the, these operations end up backfiring? Yeah. Um, it, 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 the, so what, what's gone on in the last couple of years? I mean, the way they've been still fearing to populations, now, it's, now they're trying to tell them that it's okay to get back to normal. Well, people ain't believing them. They're just, right. They don't. They don't believe them. That's that's why they're still wandering around uh, in fear of their lives. And, so then, and, would th- would this be an opportunity then to try and use a bit of reverse psychology and tell people, well, okay, you should still be afraid, and then and then because they don't trust the government, that they start to to act in an opposite fashion. I, I, I don't know on that one. 
You can draw it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I just wonder if um, what we've seen is the erosion of trust in public institutions because of the politicization of these institutions. And so what, what, what's supposed to be held up as maybe a beacon of objectivity, um, some things that, you know, might've been suspicion are, are starting to be, to come out as true that, well, these, these institutions have in fact, that they're supposed to be objective and unbiased have in fact been politicized and that might lead to short-term gains, but in the long term, it really erodes trust in public institutions. Yeah, I think you're right. It's, it's, that's certainly what, what I've seen. I mean, early on, um, in the, in the pandemic, I was, I was watching the, um, Every time they they did the briefings at Downing Street, and I mean the way they they were just given the information, they were bringing up these charts, saying this many people have got it and this many people are dying from it. And you're thinking, really, is that actually happening? Are we seeing that going on? And, and well, it turns out, it turns out that um, they were fudging the figures. Right. Somebody, I think... Somebody's put in a uh, request for information on how many people have actually died from COVID. And the figures come back actually tied from it, not with it, from it in the UK or in England, 277 people died from it. Mm-hmm. All the others have been suspected to die um, with it, so they, they died from something else. Could but could it be uh, right? I was going to say, could it be positive that COVID might have influenced the outcome or hastened the eventual outcome, but was not necessarily the direct cause, or was it simply it was coexisting in a situation? Um, and I think these are these are questions we have to be careful with, of course, because we are in public platforms. And yeah, I, I, this pandemic was a very has been a very real thing that we've we've grappled with. And obviously, COVID as a as a virus and an illness that's that's affected our population has been a very real thing. But mm. I and think the, I heard the average age of people that have died from it oh, has been eighty two. Yeah, I I. Can't remember who I heard quoted saying this, but it's um, we wouldn't want to let a good, a good crisis go to waste. And so, I just you know, and I think this is what a lot of people are trying to come to terms with. It's like we you know, people don't necessarily want to be labeled um, conspiracy theorists or science deniers, or and and maybe these terms get thrown on so much that they've actually lost all meaning or lost all weight behind yeah. them. So people are like, well, we don't care because you've you've thrown this at us so many times. When really, what it is is we want the truth, and what it's been it's so hard like. So why is it that in, in your estimation that it's so like, why is there a fear from public institutions to just literally tell people the truth and give, you know, why does everything have to have a spin to it? Why might that be the case if you were to speculate then? I, I, I think the bottom line that the whole thing has been driven by money. Isn't everything driven by money at some point in time? If you, if you drill down far enough. Some somebody somewhere along the line and uh, has made an absolute killing out of this, and they don't want to lose that. Mm, mm, okay, it's, it's it's us mugs, the taxpayer, that's footing the bill for it. 
Right. So, I mean, you look at you. You just look at um, masks. Yeah. The, you, you you take a box of masks. Uh, the sort of normal paint ones that everybody's walking around with, and it actually says on the packet, "Not suitable for airborne viruses." So is it theatre? Yeah, it, it, it's a virtue signal that an airborne virus. Why are you you're destroying your hands with, with sanitizer every every five seconds? Hmm. I mean. People walking around with, I mean, <laughs> and hands that are <laughs> scraped to their knuckles, and then and then people did, did early on in the the, the, um, the pandemic, you see people that have been wearing a, a muzzle for 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 sort of twenty hours a day, and they they got big sort of red marks where they that are oh, sure, opponent. and because they hadn't been used to wearing them, right and now now people are trying to get back to normal and and are still scared about going out uh, and, and taking a mask off and so in, in your estimation and because of your background sort of in in psychological operations and could we say psychological warfare and propaganda and information warfare and things like that um are, are you are you suggesting that that while maybe the crisis or the pandemic has been real in one sense that uh, there's all definitely been a capitalization by various, whether it's political entities or corporate entities on top of this, that maybe has exacerbated this crisis uh, for financial gain. Absolutely. And so do you, do you feel as though like if you're, if you're watching the news or if you're watching even some kind of show or, or movie or things like that, do you watch with a different perspective because of the work that you've done? And do you find that you can spot or like, you're like, aha, I know what you're doing here. Yeah. I tend to look, uh, look at it slightly different to, I suppose, most people. And I, I think what's their angle? How mm-hmm. are they, what's, what's their ultimate goal? What are they looking for? Why, why are they saying that? Right. That right. doesn't make a lot of sense. Okay. And, and until until you work out just a bit go back a couple of steps and and somebody's making some money out of it right and i think that's that's what's driven an awful what's happened over the last couple of years that today or was it yesterday in the last couple of days they they've now announced that the uk is now you can you can put your hand up and go forward for your fourth jab mhm no jab right uh, I, I think you know and we want to tread carefully here again but um <laughs> maybe being on platforms that have a history of of when you start bro- broaching these topics of of garnering quite strong reactions on either side of the spectrum and i do try to remain relatively uh neutral in this but i i suppose we could argue that if in a span of two years you're requiring four inoculations when if you look at any other sort of vaccination that that we normally receive whether it's childhood inoculations or you know generally speaking i don't know if there's any that you get four times other than maybe over the uh period like you know i've got an infant son and and you know he's got sort of routine or regular shots that he gets and 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 that's you know but we could maybe posit that it appears these aren't working the way that they were they were thought to work or the effectiveness isn't there and so what's the end of this road kind of thing i think is maybe what you're what you're hinting at here. 
Yeah. So then, if we were to, if, if we were I mean, to, it's it's big pharma. They would they originally said, "Oh, we'll we'll we'll, we'll do it at cost." And they've marked it up five times over. So uh, yeah. something that costs say seven or eight dollars to produce is being sold to the government, being paid for with tax dollars. Uh, say at thirty-six dollars a dose, when it's costing them six or seven dollars a dose to make, so they're making money hand over fist in this. And I think it's behavior like that. So even if you have an effective pharmaceutical product that is beneficial for people to utilize or have access to, it's this sort of behavior that erodes public trust in these institutions because this is almost like it's akin to war profiteering, but it's maybe pandemic profiteering, but basically the Absolutely. same, a different flavor of the same behavior, if I could put it that way. Yeah. It's, it's exactly that behavior. Right. And, and, that's, and that's what's driving it. I mean, just look who, who has benefited. Who's producing all of this, the PPE? Who's producing that? Hmm. Who's now producing um, all the vaccines? Right. So, yeah, there's there's definitely been that. Who's got a backhander from it? Right. For for people who've been who've been listening and sort of wondering, okay, because there there are obviously some some pretty crazy conspiracy theories out there. Things like and I believe conspiracy theories really grab our attention because if they were true, the reality of them is quite stark, startling, and even like horrifying. Yeah. And so you know, and there seems to be this ongoing information battle that we have misinformation and disinformation and all of this sort of thing. And people are, are fighting back and forth saying, we're the arbiters of truth. No, we're the arbiters of truth. And they're trying to screw you over. No, they're trying to screw you over. This person's a grifter and so on. And the average person is listening to this and throwing their hands up and going, I don't even know what is true anymore. And I wonder if even that scenario is somewhat deliberate because if people are becoming maybe um, dis, uh, disanchored isn't really a word, but disconnected from or, or unable to feel a sense of grounding or anchoring to reality because on both sides or all sides of sort of the narrative, you're hearing these, this sort of fight back and forth and it becomes, so it's hard to know what's true because on the one hand, you have things that really grab your attention and create fear in, in the, in the form of pretty wild conspiracy theories. On the other hand, you have things that are emerging that are turning out to be a little more true than we're comfortable acknowledging or, you know, and I think it's why people head towards comforting lies versus, you know, uncomfortable truths. Yeah. How does somebody navigate this landscape and, and maybe not get sucked into it so much? The simplest way of sorting this out uh, for the average Joe is don't watch the mainstream media. Then you won't get any of the lies that they're spilling. You're not getting the bias. You're not getting the spin that they're putting on it. So if you don't watch it, you're not going to get affected by it. Right. And and uh, could it could it be argued? And and I I think I agree with that. I, I generally don't read the news on, on a whole um, because I, I you know I believe that so uh, because I believe that news is steered by the people who pay the bills. You're the source You're of the, the money. Poor. You're the pawn. You're the pawn. Right, so but it could be argued, that, and it could be argued that uh, you know in so-called independent or alternative websites or news sites, uh, I guess they are pub in a sense they're funded by viewers or listeners, and so you could say, well, maybe they're more beholden to their viewers and listeners, so that may keep them a little bit closer to the straight and narrow. But there's you know, it's hard to avoid the the temptation of being purveyors of sort mm. of in in the competition for clicks and eyeballs and attention. 
the sensational is what grabs your eyeballs. And well, Tim, um, it's definitely been an interesting conversation and we got into some juicy stuff right near the end here, uh, which um, for, for those, for those who hung around, you know, <laughs> that, that's where the interesting stuff is, but uh, it's been a real pleasure. I appreciate you being willing to stay up late at night to, to engage in a conversation like this. And uh, thanks for sharing some of your stories, some of your expertise and really giving people a little bit of insight into what is psychological operations and propaganda. Mm. Provider propaganda, lies, and deception. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Take care and have a good night, everyone. We've created a foundation of basing who we are on the response we get from people. People are expressing to somebody else out of the dislike maybe for themselves. When you can respond with compassion, you know you've learned to develop a certain amount of love and respect and appreciation for yourself. Compassion allows us to look at these things and to see them as they are with a desire to understand without the need to judge. And in that space, that's where we create powerful transformational change.